Sandra Nichols. I'm here with Sandra Newman, and this is Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book per each year of the 20th century. Today we're talking about Kristen Lavern's Daughter, which is a trilogy of novels by Sigurd Unset. They were published in Norway in 1920, 1921, and 1922, but we're not going to avoid all three of those years for future books. Um, we'll decide which one counts for this book when we see what else we want to read. Unset, the author, won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1928, and these books are probably her best-known work, at least in the English-speaking world. They've been translated into English twice, uh, and there's also a movie based on the first book directed by Leva Ullman. Uh, so the books, they're about this character, Kristen, from her early childhood to her death, and her entire life in uh, 14th century Norway. She's the daughter of a respected landowning family at a time when that's somewhere between living in a log cabin and living in a castle. It's a historically accurate version of medieval Norway, which, when I first read it, was it was kind of confusing to know whether we were talking about knights and castles or, like, Laura Ingalls Wilder. But it's really, I guess, quite accurately somewhere right in between those two. Uh... She falls in love with a charming man, and I was planning what to say about uh, about the the man, and I found it was hard to explain what's wrong with him, because the complexity of the book is the complexity of these characters and their connection to each other. Uh, I, so, I can't summarize it neatly, but we'll talk about it in the conversation part of the podcast. Krista marries him against her parents' wishes. And they have this challenging but interesting marriage. And eventually she enters a convent after his death. And then she dies of the Black Death herself at the end of the last book. But it's not a, da a downer ending by the time it comes. Um, and we'll go into why that is also. So here's our conversation about Kristen Lavern's daughter. So what did you make of this book? Okay, so I think that like the book is really interesting both as, I, like a lot of people read it just purely as a historical romance novel. Um, and I think it's certainly like it's one of the answers to the question that what what are the great books of the romance genre? And this is one of them, it, especially the first book. The first book is really a book that, that follows most of the rules of how a romance novel should work. It, it even has some of the tropes of romance, which are extremely problematic, which I'll get to. Um, so, but as a romance novel, it's, it's actually centering the romance. That's the, the first book, the bride, which we're talking about today. Wait, is it the bride? Oh no. Did I? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I get it confused. Um, the, so the first book essentially has a romance arc, but it's framed within the story of the parents of the the female protagonist. So we begin and end with the parents who did not have a romance arc and their marriage. So that in a sense, the book is, we're being told that the book is actually about what it is not to have that story. Yeah. Uh, and the parents are really good parents in their kind of set up as ideal as parents. They're very loving. They're connected to their children. They meet their obligations. Um, people respect them. Um, 
and when they choose somebody for Kristen to marry, uh, they choose somebody who will, you know, that their land will interlock with his land uh, and he'll be the same kind of person who, who meets obligations, which is also who she has, has thought of herself as being one of those people. And it's wonderful that that character of Simon, who she's supposed to marry and does not marry, it's really like he is really like the nice guy of of incel myth. You know, he's does everything right. And we see him both like as the nice guy who who really deserves better, but also as the kind of creepy nice guy who keeps fondling her breasts when she's really stiff and uncomfortable and wants him to stop. So totally. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely not a worldview where either parent takes their own desires into consideration or her desires. It's not just that they don't think that women should have desire. It's that they don't think that anyone should have desire. They don't think they worldview. should have desire. They hate themselves for having desire and and manage to suppress their desire. And what's beautiful is that the, at the very end of the book, after like we've seen in a lot of the romance story is framed from their point of view in a way with like we're encouraged to disapprove of it and to think it's going to end badly which it sort of does but but we're told that there's a lot of foreboding but at the end we see the parents like bitterly regretting that they never had that and acknowledging at least for a moment that the reason that they're so against it is that they envy their daughter i thought that was such a remarkable scene it's amazing, yeah. I think that having the parents say, um, the father says, when I came to our bridal chamber after, you know, to whatever, have sex for the first time, you seemed so modest, where our daughter did not seem modest at the equivalent mm-hmm. time after her marriage. And the mother says, I wasn't modest. I had already been having sex with other people. I was more into, they just didn't want to marry me. And I was just really sad that we didn't have that kind of connection, that neither one of them desired the other. And the dad is just like, oh, uh, what? We're going to split up now? We have a bunch of kids. We've been married a really long time. I guess we just never get to to live that way. Oh, and the tragedy, like the father, this is a character, this is an experience that is never represented in literature. A man who actually has never had satisfying sex and is only in middle age realizing that that was an experience he might have been capable of. Yes. And he's otherwise, he's not at all the pitiful, nice guy in the character that you were describing. In some ways, I think that none of the characters are really fitting into, they're, they're sort of glancing against those tropes, but I don't mm-hmm. think they really fall too deeply into those tropes. I I thought that the way that uh, Kristen thinks about her father, the way that she takes on his qualities, she believes that because she loves him, she will also be the kind of person who can easily do the kinds of things that he can do. Uh, that she will be responsible and respected and manage whatever life gives her with dignity. And then she also wants this other thing, which is this passionate love. 
Yeah, so it's it's also very good on representing her as a person who knows who she is and knows what she wants and knows what she believes, and then sexuality comes and she still is the same person and she knows what she thinks and believes and wants, but none of that means anything anymore. Yeah. So in terms of uh, romance novel tropes, it really does not develop why she is so fixed on this one guy, except that he is attractive. Um, it's it, there's, there's not a falling in love section of the book. It's just that they meet and then within hours they're saying, I will never, I would rather die. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's then, really beautifully realistic because they, they simply meet in a dangerous situation. So there's a lot of adrenaline and that's it. They're, they're pair bonded. It's, it's like um, it's like the baby chick being hatched and seeing its mother. Uh, except that one of the baby chicks has a partner and two children already. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> so um, one of the things I wanted to talk about about this book is that in some ways, Kristen's experience is highly gendered. Um, she has a lot of concern about... Um, assault sexual assault this is a big factor like having to remain pure being perceived as pure even if she's not pure uh pure meaning fully not having sex in a way that she doesn't have as much control over whether she has sex or not as the men around have control over whether they have sex with her anything bad that happens morally she's gonna get worse of it than her male partner um the you know, disapprovable you know, hang more heavily on her, that kind of thing. Uh, and she will be the one who's pregnant when she gets pregnant. Mm -hmm. It's that she's physically carrying around um, the evidence that they had sex. And then a layer below that, I think there's this sense that the, when she arrives at the um, kind of shiftless new husband's home, he's had a common law wife. He's had two children with her. She's been waiting to be free to marry. Once she's free to marry, she shows up and says, okay, Erlen, you could marry me now. And he says, no, I'm going to marry Kristen instead. And it's it's a little dubious about whether it's suicide or not, but she ends up poisoned and dead. Maybe she was trying to kill them. Maybe she was trying to kill herself. Um, she's dead. He's free to marry Kristen. It's this really grim, miserable thing that involves a lot of crying from everyone but they do get married just in time, just before Kristen is visibly pregnant uh, with their child. The thing they're up against is not, it seems to be society's disapproval, kind of like Anna Karenina. But I think what they're really up against is the fact that he doesn't feed his animals and there's maggots in the wool and he doesn't change the reeds on his great hall floor. And he's a, a bad leader. Um, he, he keeps his household badly. And squanders, it's not squandering money in an abstract, it's squandering the harvest that has been harvested. Yeah. The ungendered value of this society is true for Kristen and her father in particular, of uh, being a person who, who can farm well, who takes good care of the animals, and who takes good care of other people, and that when she's worried about sin, it's almost making metaphorical what is literal in did you feed your animals 
Okay, I have to strongly disagree. I think you. Great. I have the opposite impression. I really, like, I really feel throughout that a lot of what we're seeing here is that we're we have a romance novel in a sense written by somebody who is a profound believer in God, and like everything is actually a representation of how if you are not right with God, nothing will go right in your life. And she's representing, this is my impression, she's representing that with, with, the, kind, with the natural subtlety and nuance and complexity and ambivalence of like a great realist writer. But, but ultimately, this is a world which is infused with the reality of God, where people feel God as a tangible force and where people are punished as if there were a God and, pe- and things play out as if there were a God. Um, so she, she doesn't do that crudely, like the parents, Roggenfried and um, Laverance, Kristen's parents, have no luck in their lives. It doesn't matter that they're very good people. They have no luck in their lives. And while there's a kind of a subtle feeling, like Roggenfried obviously feels that that's her fault because she had sex before marriage. I don't, I don't think the authorial voice supports that interpretation. It seems to just be no. part of life that that things go wrong and all of your children may die. Um, and that's that's just life. And it's part of how you have to reconcile yourself to the ways of, of God and the world. But but I really think like that the shiftlessness of Erland, it's part of his moral weakness, which she doesn't, which Kristen doesn't see when she's falling in love with him. But it's also kind of an aspect of the experience of of choosing a partner against your parents' wishes and against the promises that you've made. It's the it's the wages of sin. Like I really feel it as a very realistic representation of that idea of the wages of sin. Oh, I I think. I think we're agreeing from two different sides because I think that her, Oh, sorry. This is one thing I just wanted to say, cause I was listening to an audiobook read by a person who knows how to pronounce their names. Uh-huh. I think that the, mom, the mom's name I think is supposed to be pronounced Ronfred. Okay. Ronfred. I was wondering. Which yeah. I think that we're coming at it from two different sides, but I think we're actually saying the same thing, which is that the way that sin plays out is a very non-metaphorical thing. No, you see, this is where we actually do disagree, though, because I think that there's no. the is actually infused <laughs> with a very mystical of element, which is almost like a, it's almost like an intrusion of Dostoevsky into a very Tolstoy narrative, uh, where you have the character of Brother Irvin, who seems to actually be a saint, like a literal saint. Yeah, and these and his speeches about religion, some of which, like, ultimately, like, it even gets a little creepy. Like, he's, he's saying to Kristen that he had hoped that she would go to God with her wreath, meaning with her virginity. And <laughs> that's, yes, I think, a cringe yeah. moment for, for most contemporary readers. But there, there are also bits where it's clearly, okay, I've got a quote from Brother Irvin about, about sin, which, in a sense, is the, the theme of the book. Um, if a man knew no yearning for God and God's being, then he would thrive in hell, and we alone would not understand that he had found his heart's desire. The fire would not burn him if he did not long for coolness, and he would not feel the pain of the serpent's bite if he did not long for peace. And in a sense, like this quote from Brother Irvin is really the difference, at least in the first book, between Kristen and Erland. Erland is this guy who has no yearning for God and God's being, and Kristen is not, and so she's suffering 
during their wedding while Erland is completely happy. She's suffering when she sees the state of his estate. And he's particularly... so completely, awful. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, mean, I, also, I understand the appeal. I'm not saying I don't. I just mean he is also, like, he's, off, he's awful. He's also. a very realistically drawn, useless man. It's really quite wonderful. Yes, yes. Uh, including the fact that I think he really does love her. Yeah, yeah, and he has these lovely qualities. Like he's he's a lot. He's genuinely a lot of fun, and he's sweet and and all of this. But yes, absolutely useless. Yeah. Okay, I agree with you about the mysticism. I also think so. The author wrote this book shortly after pretty much living these exact experiences right down to the three years between her meeting the married man with children, three years of her trying to get the first wife out of the way and get herself in there, Um, and then having children with him and then breaking up with him. All of those are from her own life. Mm -hmm. So she does all that. Then she does a whole bunch of research on the 14th century and writes these books and publishes them. And then immediately afterward, converts to Catholicism. So you can see in the books a lot about what her conversion to Catholicism, like what are the ingredients Mm. of that decision? I think the question of what properties Catholicism itself has, as opposed to other forms of religion that she might've been more familiar with. um, I think that's significant in this, in this book. I don't think that that particular speech is where that where the, her vision of the religion or the meaning of the religion ends. At the very end of the last book, the the very last thing she does before she dies, she dies of plague. She has become a nun. There are some people who want to be saved from the plague, and they're trying to sacrifice a child um, who, you know, quote belongs to no one because he's the child of uh, an extremely fallen woman. Uh, who has no other kinfolk supporting either of them. She rescues the child, physically sort of prevents the wrongdoers from continuing on their jerky ways. She's a reasonably old woman at this point. But the author would like you to know, still pretty hot, which is something that we should talk about <laughs> separately. But anyway, so she's she's fairly old. She, she sort of scares off these wrongdoers, protects the child, and then discovers that the child's mother died of plague. Um, And everyone's like, oh, who even cares? Whatever. And so she goes and um, gives this this woman a burial, a dignified burial, um, and catches plague herself and dies. I think that there's a strong thread of salvation through works. In the whole story of her life, there's a sense that the world pollutes you and the your relationship with your daughter-in-law, your relationship with your husband's ex, all of these things pollute you, uh, the world, but um, that salvation doesn't necessarily come from withdrawing completely, but from uh, struggling with it harder yeah, and true. not being afraid sure. to get your hands dirty. I'm not sure if I'm not sure if we're actually disagreeing with each other after all. But I want to I want to change the subject anyway cuz cuz I right, know we're we going to talk, talk about-, about Catholicism next episode. So yes. so I want to talk about the romance genre. I want to yes. talk I want to talk shit about the romance genre. So um yes. 
let's spice this up. It. Let's talk about uh, first. Okay, you you brought up the the issue of beauty, which I, I think is re- handled really interestingly in this book. That we're told, like there are characters like her sister Oldfield, who is whose only personality is being pretty, and that's why everyone loves her. Um, yeah. And then, of course, she tragically dies, so she's punished for her beauty, which is <laughs> extremely creepy and not out of character for this book. And yeah. then there's Elena, who is um, Lavrens's common-law wife, essentially, yeah. with whom he has two children when he meets Kristen. And she, again, she's very beautiful. A lot. There's always a lot of emphasis placed on exactly how beautiful a woman falls in terms of her age. So Fru yes. Oshild is still beautiful for a 60-year-old woman. And a lot of characters say, oh, she must have been really beautiful before. She was very beautiful before. You oh, have to she like, keeps herself youthful? Yeah, she keeps herself lissom. Um, oh. <laughs> and so there's there's a lot of that. And then the, the female characters who are ugly, like, like, um, like Ronfred is emphatically ugly, the wife of Munan, whose name I've forgotten. She, she's only mentioned a couple of times, but both times she's mentioned, it's mentioned oh my gosh. that she's ugly. Other, the I, other girl at the convent also, whose whose cheeks make her eyes look small. I was like, oh, yeah, gosh. Yeah, this and constantly really like, sick burn. <laughs> these characters, like, it's astonishing when their husbands are good to them. It's astonishing if they get along with their husbands because they are ugly. And then we are told at the end of the first book that Lovrens was never able to feel any sexual attraction for his ugly wife because she's and older she's than him. Permanently, permanently depressed about it too. Yes, yes, and yeah. she feels that God has cursed her. Um, and the book does not support that interpretation, but it doesn't exactly rule it out either. Yeah. So there's all of that, which is very like the romance genre has a very sick relationship to ugly, to plain and pretty, and what that all means, and how the plain girl becomes beautiful when she falls in love, and therefore can be loved. Um, so this is no exception to that, but then what is even more disturbing is the framing of consensual sex as non-consensual uh. sex and non-consensual sex and the, the line being completely erased so that we're kind of, we actually never even really know to what degree certain sexual acts between the main characters are consensual. Wait, so did you read the old translation or the new translation? The new translation. Okay, because the old translation is the one that I originally read, and they actually cut out some of the more explicit stuff that's going on around the sex scenes. So I think it is more ambiguous in the older translation. I think in the new translation, uh, Kristen is pretty emphatic that it was consensual the first few times, but that the time before they are married but they are engaged um that erlen forces her and that he's kind of playful and doesn't quite believe that she's refusing him yeah um again because as the the point that you just made that he is in hell but doesn't feel it burning because he doesn't really understand why she feels that it has become wrong now that they've been given permission to marry but that's the time when they conceive the child that she then um is really really anxious about getting married before that her pregnancy is visible. Um, and then that's also the beginning of her being truly angry at him. Mm-hmm. And that was the thing that I thought was, was pretty realistic for a romance novel uh, that has demi consensual, probably not actually consensual sex in it. 
Um, I think that that is probably not, I just want to say, I think that that's largely a trope that the romance genre has moved on from. But oh, yeah, yeah. I think it was a totally. big deal for a really long time. Fair, yeah. And I, I think that her bearing a grudge and her sort of understanding that there is now this bad thing between them that that isn't just dissolved with her loving feelings um, and that she's the one who has to be stressed about being pregnant before the wedding because he raped her. Um, well, okay. I just want to put in, this is my argument for, Oh yeah. Let's, I want to hear it for the first, their first encounter, which is for, for the romance genre that their first sexual encounter is obviously the money shot. And so I think it's, it's interesting, like how it's framed. Um, and again, like I, I cut this out so that I could quote it. So he, they're stuck in, I think a barn by a sudden thunderstorm and they're just about to leave. And then he kisses the bare skin above her knee in leave taking, but then he kind of loses control. So this is how it's described. She was suddenly reminded of a man who had once been given food at the convent. He had kissed the bread they handed to him. She sank back into the hay with open arms and let Erlen do as he liked. And then, of course, the camera pans away and we come back to them. And he says to her afterwards, do you think I lured you out here to do that, to take you by force? And she responds to him, I wouldn't call it force. You would have let me go as I came if I had asked you to. So basically he's seeing it as force and she's not seeing it as force here. And I think yeah. that has to do with like the medieval conception of what rape is. It's only rape if it's, it is always rape if you are having sex with a, a maiden who you're not allowed to have sex with, who's of a certain class and th- like belongs to somebody else. Therefore it's rape. And she is seeing it in ter- our terms that I wouldn't call it force because I let you do it. But, it, but I think like, having that element of force cited there is a sneaky way of making it feel like a rape fantasy. And this again happens like Ron yeah. Fred talks about her encounter with the, the man she had before Lovrens as what he did to me. And it's again, like super unclear whether she is interpreting something that was done to her as her sin or whether she had a consensual relationship. It's just never cleared up. Um, that's also the framing of the earlier encounter between Kristen and her childhood friend and then, um, Bentine, the bad, bad childhood friend, like whatever there's two different men. She meets one of them to say goodbye. He really tries to sort of push his agenda there and she's not into it and rejects him and he keeps keeps pushing but stops which makes him like the good suitor and then the other one tries to rape her anyway the whole thing ends with the the bad one murdering the good one but they were both pushing past her signals of not mm-hmm. being interested pretty hard and then everyone in the society agrees that this is Kristen's fault yes yes they they barely even bother to to register that the, the I mean the man who attempts to rape her uh, Bentine he is exiled 
but everyone blames her for that. It's not as if, oh, yes, thank God he's exiled. He was raping people. <laughs> well, and murdering that other guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's not, none of that. It's that she, it's her fault entirely. She is the serpent who has caused evil to be unleashed upon the world. I think the other side of her being the serpent who unleashes evil is that a lot of people love her really I think too many people are in love with her, I would say. <laughs> That's very romance genre too. It's a, it, yeah. Exactly. That it's, it's not that she's, it's not that she's the most beautiful. She's not ugly. She's beautiful. She's not the most beautiful. Mind you, that can happen. Ever. It's that thing that you wait for bus for a bus for 40 minutes and then they all come along at once. It's one of those like laws of dating. So could happen. Um, I, I think she, she, um, we hear about the 40 buses part of her, <laughs> life, which happens between like 16 and 50. Um, with a lot of asides about how it's astonishing that she's had eight children and still has like a teeny tiny little waist and, you know, <laughs> listen, this and that. And, uh, it, I, I almost wish that she was allowed to, to just get older to not mm-hmm. have to be attractive, to not have like it's it's like she has a special degree of um, wrongdoing when people do wrong things around her that involve her. Um, but then she also gets like a special degree of um, kindness from people like uh, the monk, you know, people who are like, oh, you are special. Um, your brother-in-law has always been in love with you. Uh, like Anne of Green Gables, I'm saying yeah, that. In well, it is. Way, it is sort I of really don't like how everyone loves Anne of Green Gables best. It's just like a female version of the Chosen One narrative. You just get so much less as a Chosen One when you're a woman. Like you don't get to be Harry like Potter. All you, get, like a month, <laughs> you just a, get a, like a lot of sexual harassment <laughs> and and monks telling you that they wish you had gone to God with your wreath. That's what you get when you're the Chosen One. And you're a girl. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I mean, when was Anne of Green Gables published? I know that a lot of people have liked Anne of Green Gables since it was written. I just resent <laughs> the way that the book can't let Diana's grandmother love Diana best. Like Diana's grandmother has to be like, actually, Anne is my favorite little girl. I, I think that feeling that every single person in the book has to be in love with this one character in order to for her to feel like a protagonist. Um, It's the other side of the coin of everyone blaming her when anything goes wrong. Um, But both of them are icky. Yeah. And let's, let's just talk about the characters who aren't loved. Like, like I'm kind of fascinated by Eileen Orm's daughter. I think that's who I would be if I were in this narrative is the, the woman who, was married to the, this is not meant as a comment on my current husband, excuse me, (laughs) (laughs) who's married to an unsexy old man when she's a beautiful young girl and the the man never even has sex with her. And so love, uh, sorry, um, Erland is living in her house and they begin to have a thing and she leaves her husband for him. But then he gets tired of her and because he gets tired of her, they argue a lot. Um, and they're in a, you know, they're in a bad situation. They argue a lot. And this is obviously meant to be foreshadowing of what will happen later on with Kristen and Ireland. But, but for, for Eileen, she's not the chosen one. So instead of 
having everyone love her and getting to become sainted by her good works as a nun in the plague at the end of the book, she we are meant to believe that she attempts to poison Kristen and then either stabs herself or is justly stabbed by Kristen is the inst- like, uh, immediately as soon as she appears on stage we get rid of her because she's just an unnecessary plot complication who has to be disposed of. Yeah. And her claim on Erlen is so legitimate. Yes. It's so clear. Um, and sure, like that it is framed as this is one of the many people Kristen will trample on to get to the sexual consummation that she wants. And that makes it a sin and it's bad. But we are also emphatically told that Eileen is a is again a, is a real serpent is really like somebody who has gone to the dogs and therefore it's probably a mercy that she can just be dispensed with in this way yeah another character that I think of in that category is um the other younger sister the one who marries um the cast off uh fiance so Kristen doesn't marry Simon mm-hmm. um and he never stops being in love with her, naturally. Of course. Uh, but he does marry her younger sister. And the younger sister ends up being angry because, you know, all these decades later, her husband is still in love with Kristen. Um, it, eh, you know. I mean, this is the way plots, like con- conventional plots do work in this way. And it's it's sort of interesting to see. Like a lot of novels, in order to work, they have to use some conventional plot machinery, which is often seriously problematic in terms of what it says about the world and what it says about how we center ourselves and need to believe that people love us and put us first. And that even, you know, uh, my old flame obviously still carries a torch for me, even though he's married to my sister. Like, this is the kind of belief we have about ourselves. You, Sandy. Well, well, my my old flames, of course, are still. Okay, you know that's that's different. That's different. That doesn't count as this. Like, uh, but anyway, um, putting that aside. But you see what I'm saying? Like, it's, in some ways, like plot machinery is satisfying because it does those things. And then the ways in which a, a writer deviates from that plot machinery is their style, is their ph- philosophy. Yes. You know, and we read books that way. Yes. Um. I think that those touches are the things that make it seem like it's a 20th century book, the the plot machinery ones, places where she's not paying attention to what she's doing and she's just doing something more conventional. Those are the places where it feels like a 20th century book and not a book about the land in a really physical way, like Little House on the Prairie type encounter with the land. And also uh, theology, that that those are the things that she's paying attention to. And then she throws in a few of these things that seem very of their time, 1910s, early 1920s plot machinery. I don't know. I think there are also some things which which actually feel like insights that come from a later era. Like, the, like just the character of Erland, like his very realistic lostness and shiftlessness into inability to grow a backbone and and be a real person um feels um, like something I, that comes from a later consciousness maybe except that she just was married to that guy 
So she probably oh, has yeah. a lot of thoughts about guys exactly like that. Still. Um, and oh, he was an artist also. <laughs> okay, you make a good the point. Actual, <laughs> the actual husband. And yet we know um, that like generally when people write things, they they code their experiences into acceptable conventions, and he or she has not done. I don't know that we get to be mean about artists being bad partners. Well, I we should... do because we're artists and we're bad partners. Well, that's what I mean. I, I just think that <laughs> anybody listening to this might be like badly changed reeds on our floors <laughs> uh, in our uh, great halls. Exactly. Yes. That's our first episode on Kristen Laverne's Daughter. Thank you so much for listening. And we'd also like to thank Adam Bear for our podcast music and the LitHub people for hosting us. And a special shout out to one of our listeners, Ginger Brown, who first gave me a copy of all three Kristen Laverne's Daughter books when I was a, a teenager. And um, I was grateful then, and I'm grateful now. And thank you for listening. Um, as always, if you would like to tweet to us, we're at LitCenturyPod. And if you'd like to email us, we're at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, next week, we'll be talking more about Kristen Laverne's daughter. We'll have a guest, and we will be uh, talking about the historical and religious context a little bit more. So goodbye for now. 